About four or five years ago, uh, we were in my office about 8.30 for our early morning prayer time, which by the way, we still meet faithfully to pray for the service. It's still at 8.30. It's now in room 255, and you are all welcome to join us. Uh, We get together, there's been a group of us praying faithfully since I started 13 years ago, every Sunday morning asking that God would do what he wants to do among us, praying for strength for those who are participating in the service, encouraging one another as we look forward to our time together. Please come and join us. 20 minutes. We play from 8.30 to 8.50, uh, just getting ready for the service. Well, that plug aside, about four or five years ago, we were in that prayer meeting praying for uh, the Sunday morning service. And I'm not sure if that Sunday morning We were making announcement about Grace Beyond, which was our building project, or there was something going on about it, or whatever it was, but we somehow were talking about it right before we got ready to pray. And Jim Kingma was in the room, and he sort of blurted out, we have to do this project. We have to do it for our children and for our youth. And he said this, my wife and I are praying about what we should give to this. We feel like the Lord is in this. And even though I'm never going to set foot in the building, we have to do this. It was encouraging. It was powerful. It was inspiring. And it was prophetic on all accounts. We did do this building project. It's been a great blessing for our children and our youth. And Jim King died before he ever got to set foot in the building. I tell you that story because I still think about those words that he uttered. That here was a man who I believe at the time, either his late 80s or early 90s, who was not thinking about himself and what to do with his money in retirement, was thinking about those who are going to come after him and what we needed. And he was praying and giving for something he was never going to be part of in this earthly life. And I think, what about me? You see, what you think about those who come after you says a lot about what's going on in your heart. And so what about us? Now the easiest application of that question is for those who are going to outlive us. But I think that question about those who come after us is far more applicable than just those who outlive us. What about if God is giving you a new job? Have you given thought to the person who will have your old job? Have you tried to make things ready for that person or have you simply said, whew, I'm out of here. Let the next person worry about it. For those of you here who are college seniors or high school seniors or eighth graders or fourth or fifth graders, have you thought about those students who are still going to be at the school after you graduate? Have you thought about the church group that you're leaving to move on to the next one? Have you thought, how do I leave this in the best place for them? Or have you thought, man, I cannot wait 
until this is over. What about in politics? Are we voting with future generations in mind or with our generation in mind? What about in our finances? Are we planning how we can have something to give to others to help them on their journey? Or simply how we can spend our years the way we want to spend them in whatever material comfort we can provide for ourselves. What you and I think about those who come after us says a lot about what's going on in our hearts. This morning we're going to look at a story of a man who didn't do very well thinking about those coming after him. And we want to try to have a different legacy than he did. So please, if you will, would you take a Bible and turn to Isaiah chapter 39. Isaiah chapter 39. It's page 585 in the church Bibles. Isaiah 39. We're going to be looking at the story of King Hezekiah, the last story of Hezekiah recorded in the scriptures. Now, Hezekiah is a fantastic king. He's done great things. He's served the Lord faithfully. He's worked hard. He trusted the Lord when the Assyrians were invading. He asked the Lord to heal him of his sickness, and last week we saw that he was given 15 more years of life. But unfortunately, he doesn't end well. And we're going to look at Hezekiah's last story in Isaiah 39. Please read with me as I read from verse 1. You're going to read silently. I'm going to read aloud. (laughs) At that time, Marduk Baladan, son of Baladan, king of Babylon, sent Hezekiah letters and a gift because he had heard of his illness and recovery. You remember last week we saw this story, Isaiah 38. Hezekiah was said he was going to die. He prayed and begged God for more life, and God gave him 15 more years. That's what this is referring to. Hezekiah received the envoys gladly and showed them what was in his storehouses, the silver, the gold, the spices, the fine olive oil, his entire armory and everything found among his treasures. There was nothing in his palace or in all his kingdom that Hezekiah did not show them. Then Isaiah the prophet went to King Hezekiah and asked, what did those men say, and where did they come from? From a distant land, Hezekiah replied, they came to me from Babylon. The prophet asked, what did they see in your palace? They saw everything in my palace, Hezekiah said. There is nothing among my treasures that I did not show them. Then Isaiah said to Hezekiah, Hear the word of the Lord Almighty. The time will surely come when everything in your palace and all that your predecessors have stored up until this day will be carried off to Babylon. Nothing will be left, says the Lord. And some of your descendants, your own flesh and blood who will be born to you, will be taken away and they will become eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. The word of the Lord you have spoken is good. 
Hezekiah replied, for he thought there will be peace and security in my lifetime. Question, envoys show up from Babylon. They've heard about Hezekiah's illness and his recovery. What did Hezekiah promise that he would do when God healed him? What do most of us promise we will do if God heals us? Praise him. Give him glory, right? Does Hezekiah do that with the envoys from Babylon? God has sent people who do not know him to come and visit him because Hezekiah vowed that he would tell them about God. What does Hezekiah do? He shows off his treasures. He shows them every bit of silver and gold in the whole kingdom. Can you imagine marching from city and city? Here's some more gold. Here's some more gold. Here's some more gold. Every single nice thing he's got. It's like the person who comes back from the trip with 8,000 pictures and says, let me show them all to you. <laughs> Hezekiah is taking them everywhere. Not once does he mention, oh, by the way, that healing, that was a gift from the Lord. Not once does he do what he said he was going to do, which was to give praise to God. Instead, he's showing off his treasures. And there's something wrong with that. Remember what Jesus says, where your treasure is, that's where your heart is. So Isaiah shows up and he says, hey, who came to visit you? And as a guy is like, all these people from Babylon came and I showed him everything. All the money, all the spices, all the treasures, all those things. And you can hear Isaiah thinking, what are you doing? We remember Hezekiah's dad, Ahaz, who when Syria and Israel were going to invade Judah, Ahaz takes a bunch of money and pays off Assyria to help him defeat Syria and Israel. Well, not long after that, Assyria is like, well, hey, if you got that much money, we'll take not just that, but all of it. Now Hezekiah is showing all of his money to the envoys from Babylon, and Hezekiah is like, why would you wave that carrot in front of their face? Why would you do something like that? Worse still, Isaiah says, Babylon, they're going to come to this land, and they're going to destroy everything and take everything, even some of your own sons and daughters. And they'll take them back as slaves and captives. And what's Hezekiah's response? The word of the Lord you have spoken is good. There will be peace and security in my lifetime. Now we say, it's a prophecy from God. There's nothing Hezekiah can do about it. He's trying to make the best of things. He's thinking, well, at least all that bad stuff won't happen while I'm alive. A question, if you were here last week or you were reading through Isaiah, in Isaiah 38, when God resolved that Hezekiah's life was going to end 
and there was no choice? What was Hezekiah's reply in that situation? He begged God. He wept bitterly. He thought, must my life be taken from me in the midst of the land of the living? And God responded. Where is that here? Where's the crying? Where's the weeping? Where's the, oh Lord, have mercy? Where is the call for national repentance? Where is Hezekiah grabbing, gathering everybody from Judah together to say, we must seek the Lord so that this thing does not come upon us and our descendants? Where is that attitude? It's missing. Why? Selfishness. Doesn't affect me. Let future generations worry about it. If Babylon's coming as long as they're not coming while I'm king, while I'm alive, that's good news. Is it good news? No. The pride and the selfishness. Hezekiah is thinking too much about himself and not enough about God. What about God's reputation when Babylon shows up? Or about others? His own sons and daughters who are going to be taken off into slavery. Hezekiah's got no concern for them. Now compare this attitude with that of Moses. Who when he was told he was not allowed to go into the promised land... He worked night and day to get everything ready for Joshua who was going to take the children of Israel into the promised land and that he taught them all through the book of Deuteronomy and gave them warnings and instructed them so that they would be successful when they got into the promised land even though Moses was never going to make it. Or Naomi who in the story of Ruth after she settles back in the land of Israel after she now has some income coming in through Ruth, she says in Ruth chapter three, verse one, my daughter, I must find a home for you where you will be well provided for. Naomi is saying, Ruth, we gotta find a family for you because after I'm gone, who are you going to have? Or the case of David, who when he was told he was not allowed to build the temple, got all the supplies ready, made all of the plans, gathered everything for Solomon and gave generously of his own resources for a building he would never set foot in. Or consider Paul. In Acts chapter 20, Paul says as he's getting ready to leave the church at Ephesus, I know that after I leave, savage wolves will come in among you and will not spare the flock even from your own number, men will arise and distort the truth in order to draw away disciples after them. So be on your guard. Remember that for three years, I never stopped warning each of you night and day with tears. For three years, Paul is trying to get them ready for the day when he leaves because he knows difficulty is coming. He doesn't say, hey, I'm out of here by that point. Good luck. Peter does something similar in 2 Peter chapter 1. So I will always remind you of these things. Even though you know them and are firmly established in the truth you have, I think it is right to refresh your memory as long as I live in the tent of this body because I know that I will soon put it aside, meaning he's going to die, 
as our Lord Jesus Christ has made clear to me. And I will make every effort to see that after my departure, you will always be able to remember these things. Or of course, the ultimate example, which is Jesus, who on the very night he was going to be betrayed, facing the worst 24 hours that any human could ever even possibly imagine, says this to his disciples in an upper room, and I will ask the Father, and he will give another advocate to help you and be with you forever, the Spirit of truth. The world cannot accept him because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him, for he lives with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. And on that very night, Jesus, who has his own stuff to worry about, prays earnestly for his apostles and for you and for me. As he goes to the cross, his heart and his mind are set on those who will come after him. And the question is, what about us? What you think about those who come after you whether those who outlive you or those who take over for you in the school or in the ministry or at your job, what you and I think about those who come after us says a lot about what's going on in our hearts. Will we be like Hezekiah who says, hey, long as it doesn't happen to me, I'm good? Or like Moses and Naomi and David and Paul and Peter and Jesus whose minds are thinking about those who come after them? Well, how do we apply this teaching if we are to be like Jesus and not like Hezekiah? Let me give you 11 possible applications for this. We're going to work through them together. Different ways you and I might think about, care for, and love those who come after us. Number one. Serve a group younger than you. Did you hate middle school? Were those difficult years? What about those who are currently in middle school? Why not get involved and serve them? Or are you just going to say, glad I made it through, I never want to go back to that again. What about those who are in the new baby phase? That's an exhausting phase, isn't it? It's easy to say, whew, I'm done with that. Why not serve in that ministry so that those parents can have a little bit of a breather from the overwhelming tidal wave of energy drain? Number two, write your story. Write your story. I love when people at the church, and it happens regularly, come and give me a copy of a self-published book that they've written about what it is God's done in their life. It's sometimes a testimony of healing. It's sometimes a testimony of God's faithfulness. It's not for mass publication. They've written it for their family. It's a beautiful thing. Hezekiah, in the last chapter, writes his story down so that people can know it. Has God been doing great things for you? Why not share that with those who are going to come after you? Why not let them read how God has been faithful to you? It will encourage them as well. 
Number three, teach and mentor others. Do you remember what it was like to first start out in the real estate business? Why not help somebody who's just getting started on that journey? Do you remember how difficult it was to balance family and work and academic studies when you were a med student or a resident? Why not help someone else who's in the midst of that right now? Do you know what it's like to try to get going in a law practice or start a new job as a salesperson? Why not come alongside of someone else who's just going through that? And think about what they're going through at this time. Number four. Tackle the hard stuff before you go. (laughs) Write a will. Don't just give two weeks notice at your job. Do whatever it takes to get things ready for the person who will come after you who's going to have that job when you're done with it. Make arrangements for what's going to happen with your business. Invite someone in to be a partner with you, whatever it may be, to prepare for the difficult things that are coming. If there's something that needs to happen at your job, do it now, don't make it the next person do it. Tackle the hard stuff before you go. Number five, ready an inheritance. This week as we were talking about this passage, Mark Kudlarczyk, one of the people who works in our tech area, with tears in his eyes, told the story of going to his grandmother's funeral and about how he found out that his grandmother had lived and chosen to live a very simple and frugal life so that at her funeral there would be something to give to each grandchild as a financial blessing. And that she chose to limit her spending so she would have something to give to others. What about us? Are we simply making plans to say, how can I make sure I've got just enough money so that I can do all the things I want to do in my retirement years? That's actually the attitude of Hezekiah. Ready an inheritance? thinking about those coming after you. Number six, invest your time. High school seniors, eighth graders, fourth and fifth graders. It's really easy to think, man, that next stage is coming. Why not keep going to youth group events all summer long? Why not sign up for missions trips? Why not invest in the community that you're leaving so that the next generation, the next group that's coming up behind you receives an energized and exciting youth group that they can be part of. Give your time for those who are coming after you. It's so easy just to think about, I can't wait until I'm out of here. Number seven, pray and share the gospel Jim Halwarda, who's part of our congregation, well into his uh, senior years, has been praying earnestly and devotedly for revival. He may not get a chance to see it in this life, but he's praying earnestly for it. 
And what about sharing the gospel with others? This is probably the one in which we're most susceptible. We think, I'm saved. I'm good. I'm at peace. Whatever happens to those who come after me, well, that's between them and the Lord. Right? That's the attitude of Hezekiah. But the attitude of Jesus says, there are people out there who do not yet know Jesus who are dying and their eternal destiny is hell. And we think to ourselves, man, Jesus, come back as soon as possible. Now, I get that. I get the idea that you want him to come back. But you do realize that when he comes back, it means there's a whole lot of people who don't get in. Are we going to be like Hezekiah and say, the word of the Lord is good. At least I'm going to heaven. I don't know about them. Number seven, pray and share the gospel. Number eight, abandon your preferences. This church is 90 years old. We've seen a lot of changes in 90 years. In externals. Positions, dress, programs, buildings, the way things work. As we go forward, that's the way it must be. The church is a living entity. And if you and I are only concerned about the generation that is sitting in the chairs now, and not for those who will come after us, if we only think about where we are now and not the person who's going to walk through those doors next week, we're doing what Hezekiah did. There are more changes that have to happen because we have to continually grow and change. There are changes in positions. There are changes in programs. There are changes in worship styles. If you and I will not abandon our own preferences to think about those who are coming after us, well, 90 years is about as old as we're gonna be. Number nine, engage in the fight. You know, it's easy when you've been through a sifting, a spiritual trial, a difficulty, to think, man, I'm so glad I'm done with that. I never want to go back through that again. And when you see somebody else struggling with pornography or an eating disorder or anxiety or fear, it's easy for us to think to ourselves, man, I hope they make it, but I don't want anything to do with that anymore. That's the attitude of Hezekiah. The attitude of Jesus says, go back into the fight. Pray for them. Somebody got up in the middle of the night and prayed for you, get up in the middle of the night and pray for them. Somebody walked alongside of you through that addiction, through that struggle, through that difficulty, go walk alongside of them. Number 10, Vote in ways that will bless coming generations. Are we thinking just about ourselves when it comes to politics? Or are we thinking about those who come after us with regards to the environment, with regards to the budget and to taxes, with regards to immigration, with regards to the unborn? Are we thinking only about what's in our best interests? Are we thinking there are people who will come after us? And finally, number 11. 
be merciful with others' failings, shortcomings, and inexperience. Be merciful with others' failings, shortcomings, and inexperience. You and I didn't always do our homework on the night we were supposed to do it, did we? We weren't always good at managing time. We didn't always finish a construction project when we said we were going to finish the construction project. We had to grow through those seasons of immaturity. When you look at those who are just getting started doing homework or construction projects or learning how to manage time, it's easy to grade them on where we are instead of where we used to be. And if it wasn't for others' mercy towards us, we wouldn't have gotten to where we are now. And there is the call to remember, Jesus didn't treat us the way our sins deserved. Those who come after us, we ought to treat them the way we were treated. With mercy and with kindness and with patience. Remembering it's God's kindness that leads us to repentance. That God's patience and God's tolerance is what allows us to get to where we are. Certainly there's one of these 11 that you can find to put into practice. There's a lot I can find to put into practice. See, the thing I love about Jim Kingma's story is I love the fact that here's a man who was thinking about those who were going to come after him, who was doing what Moses did, getting things ready for Joshua, who was doing what Naomi did, getting things ready for Ruth, who was doing what David did, getting things ready for Solomon, who was doing what Paul did, getting the Ephesian church ready for what was coming, who was doing what Peter did, getting everything ready for his departure, and who was doing what Jesus did, thinking about those coming after him. I don't think it's an accident that on this week in which the Lord led me to Jim Kingma's story or reminded me of that story, that months ago, the worship planning team, not knowing I was going to be preaching or sharing this story, I didn't know I was going to be sharing this story, made preparations and asked one of Jim Kingma's grandsons, Jordan Underwood, to lead us in worship last week through the playing of piano, and that this week, as only God can do it, the Lord had another one of Jim Kingma's grandsons, Nick, leading us in worship this morning. A legacy of a generation coming after him who's faithful. I also don't think it's an accident that seven of Jim Kingma's great-grandchildren are even today in that children's ministry. Walking around, being cared for, being ministered to in that building that he helped pay for and pray for. Nor do I think it's an accident that there are hundreds of brothers and sisters in Christ that Jim Kingma has not yet met who are in that children's ministry, who he's going to have the rest of eternity to get to know and get to spend time with, who are being blessed by that building that he helped pay for and pray for. And the question to you and I today is what about us? 
Will we be like Hezekiah who says, as long as it doesn't happen in my lifetime, I'm good. I'm through. I'm saved. I made it. I got through medical school. I got through the first years of the job. I got through those difficult, hard years of marriage. I got through those baby years. I got through those tight years when there weren't any finances. I got through those experiences of pornography or the eating disorder. I got through all those difficult things of a wayward child or someone walking away from the Lord. I got through that sickness. I got through that cancer. Whew! So glad I made it. Or are we going to be like Jesus? who in the worst hour that any human could have ever imagined had his thoughts not on himself, but on God and all those who are going to come after him. Thank you so much for joining us for this podcast from Calvary Church. We hope this message has brought the light and hope of God's presence into your life, refreshing your soul for the journey the Lord has you on. If you have a spiritual need or would like to connect further with the work God is doing through Calvary Church, seek us out online at calvarygr.org. On our website, you can also find an archive of previous messages from this series. Thanks for listening.